Greetings and welcome to Best Cultural Destinations podcast, People Are Culture. I'm Meg Pierre, host of this interview series, which presents stories of how culture is created, preserved, and shared one person at a time. People Are Culture podcast celebrates our unique differences and shared human condition and reveals that while the phenomenon of culture is universal, its meaning is personal. Anardo McLaughlin is an assemblage and mosaic artist and founder and curator of the Chapel of Jimmy Ray Gallery and the Casa de los Ramos compound about a half hour outside of San Miguel de Allende in Mexico. Anato, who was originally named James Rayburn McLaughlin III, became a Mexico resident by way of Oklahoma, New York, India, and California. Anato has been creating art since early childhood and remains committed to tapping into that childlike innocence and sense of playfulness. His vision has been to create a visceral playground for both adults and children. He says, I am not trying to change the world. I am using my art as a vehicle of exploration and inclusion in this big old world. I am pleased to welcome Anato to Best Cultural Destinations, People Art Culture podcast. Anato, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to have you here on the People Our Culture podcast. And I want to dive in and start by asking a universal question, um, which is, how do you define culture? Oh, that's uh, very important. Culture to me is like the byproduct and the essence of uh, sentient beings living amongst one another. It's always a mystery what comes up. There's the culture of yogurt. There's a culture of ants. There's a culture of humanity. But if you're speaking about human culture, it's to me, uh, it's always defined in different uh, geographical locations and states of mind. So it's a byproduct of people living with one another. I would agree. And um, why does it matter? Culture? Yes. Uh, It matters because it's a a thread, threads that move and entwine with one another and create a tapestry of living. It's it's what it is. It's what this whole existence is about. I believe it's a, the human culture is uh, a, just an amazing, uh, amazing event that uh, I'm very proud to be part of. I'm sure you are too. I am. So you are originally from Oklahoma. Can you uh, tell us how did growing up there influence who you are today? Did it play a role in the person you've become and the creator you've become? Certainly did. Um, I believe I spent maybe 40 years of my life running away from Oklahoma and uh, not being very proud to have been from the middle of nowhere. But in a sense, the middle of nowhere is a very Zen statement. Uh, To me, I I guess I was in my 20s when I realized um, the physical beauty of living on the prairie, but the uh, cultural... uh, uh, experience was just too much for me. I, I just felt uh, like I was a uh, frog in a shark pond. Uh, it's full of uh, very, to me, conservative ideologues, and I could not uh, thrive there, so I left. 
But I think in my response to leaving, uh, I, I never, ever forgot that I was in Oklahoma. And, uh, it's just something that's in the, in the air. It's, it's a way of being. It's just uh, almost like being the byproduct of being born a, in a log cabin. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 different. It's different than New York. Right. Different than Boston. Um, now, um, the installation um, that you have uh, on your compound is just incredible, and um, there's so many different dimensions to it, and it's it's quite extensive. And one of the things that really struck me is that in different components of the installation. Um, you pay homage to both your father and your mother. And I'm wondering if you can share what their respective legacies are to you, you know, both as a person and an artist, and describe each of the pieces um, that pay tribute to them. Uh, I can start with my father. Um, my father, his given name um, was James Rayburn McLaughlin, Jr., he was a physician. His father's name was James Rayburn McLaughlin Sr. He was also a physician. And the name that I was christened with is James Rayburn McLaughlin III. It's quite a mouthful and it's quite a something to live up to in that legacy of doctors. I just never was attracted to being a physician in any way whatsoever form. And I rebelled against it all of my uh, youth. My father passed away when I was, I believe, uh, 22 years old. He died in an airplane accident. And he never really ever got to know me as an adult. The last um, installment of myself that he saw was a, sort of a nerdy wheel hippie kid. And uh, I don't think he was that proud of me, even though there was some sort of a connection. The, the, the tragedy is that I believe my father never, ever told me he loved me. It was uh, it just never happened. And it was something that I had to deal with for a long time. And But I do know deep in my heart that we did have that connection of father-son. There's nothing more important for a man than the relationship with his father. And my father taught me everything about who I don't need to be in his by his legacy. And so... I named on our property, our gallery, um, the Chapel of Jimmy Ray Gallery. It's uh, My dad's name was James Rayburn, so that's where Jimmy Ray comes from. Uh, my sister, uh, who is a very conservative woman, asked me, why would you do that? And I said, because he was our father. And she said, I still don't understand why you would do that. And I told her, because he gave me life, and that's why I named it that. I'm very grateful that I'm on this planet. And I wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for him. So that's my dad. As far as my mother is concerned, um, she is the reason I believe that I am an artist. Uh, she uh, nurtured me in that respect. She knew I was somewhat of an um, outcast in my class, class situation in school. I had, I believe, some sort of learning disability. I couldn't sit still in class. I was kind of a the class clown times 10. And she just told the teachers that if you can uh, um, point them more towards uh, art and poetry, I think you might have an easier time. And that's what happened. It was just exquisite. And my 
best memories of childhood were going through my mother's jewelry box and seeing all the beautiful bangles and tangled uh, beads and pearls and the mystery of it all. And uh, it just, it just, um, today I'm what would you consider a, um, an adornment uh, artist. I adorn a lot. And um, I would say to mother when I was a kid, mother, I'm bored. And she said, well, make something, honey. So that's basically what I've been doing is I've been making things to keep from being bored. I'm very grateful to my mother and I've dedicated is right now it's about a 110 meter long mosaic wall on our property and it's dedicated to my mother Marie McLaughlin. What fantastic advice. <laughs> um, you know, go make something and you know that she understood you enough to to really point you in the right direction and and give others who are in a position to teach you, you know, advice on where to lead you. Um very great. That is quite a legacy. And and you said something um, when um, I was um, on your property about your mother's tribute, um, about um, we are all part of the story. And I, I'd love to have you explain that. Well, to me, uh, ultimately being that we're all part of the stories, that we all uh, have an origin in uh, women. We are part of uh, the um, essence of coming from women. And we share that in our existence, whether we're male, female, or trans, or fluid. And uh, it's quite an amazing thing. And ironically, yesterday here in San uh, Miguel, I was able to see uh, the vagina monologues performed. And that just says it to me more. I may start crying because it meant so much to me. Uh, this uh, women uh, are to me are the essence, and uh, I always like to pay homage to the essence. Mm. And um, that's a gift, and that you have that bond with your mother. And when did she die? She died. Uh, she died in 1992, I believe, in Oklahoma. Uh, she had uh, gone to an Azalea festival came home, drank a cup of coffee, went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting the next day and uh, put the coffee cup in her sink with her. She always had her red lipstick, went to the AA meeting and her last words after introducing my cousin, who was the speaker that day, she said, oh, my heart. Those were her last words. Wow. So she yeah. was a sober woman? She was sober for 17 years. Uh People say, wow, where did you get a mother like that? And I said, uh, it wasn't always like this. It was a whole, you know, it was a mixed bag. But I believe that, that my mother had a, a uh, what one would call uh, an awakening. Uh, you might, the Zen people call it enlightenment. My mother was an awakened being. She had a religious experience. And to be around her as a, Sober woman was to be around a Buddha. Wow. Really, I mean that. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she saw your success. Well, she, um, she <laughs> I was the apple of her eye, so I guess I was always the success to her, no matter what kind of trouble. Oh, I love that. Yeah, no matter what kind of trouble I got myself into, she was very proud to have me. She 
she knew me. She knew me deeply. And I told the story yesterday. I got on the plane after her funeral to fly back to California. I was sitting next to the window. I usually sit in the aisle seat, but that day I wanted to be at the window. And a man and his son got on the plane to sit next to me. And the little boy, cute little kid said, can I sit next to the window? And I said, I'm sorry, no, you can't. I have to sit here. And we were flying back and we were maybe over Utah or something. And and I'm looking into the clouds and whether you want to believe it or not, I had a visit from my mother. I told this story yesterday to friends and she said, I'm in a place where there's no judgment. And to me, that is such a profound statement because I think we as humans uh, live a, a life of judgment and denial and comparison and all these things that really don't uh, help us in any way get further on in our involvement. And my mother has always been and will be my teacher and my guardian angel. Well, you know, Anato, the minute I said, you know, she got to see your success, I thought to myself, why did I say that? Because, you know, I think when you are a creative and you are artistic, um, or even if you're not, you know, like, what does success really mean? Um, You know, as long as you're doing something that you feel has meaning and that you have those people that love you unconditionally. So um, I, I get what you're saying. And um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a really great question. I'm with you on that. Now you spent a decade in New York and while there you had a dream that inspired your life philosophy. Can you tell us about that and that period in your life? Uh, yes, I I went to New York in the early 70s, like 71, and uh, to be an artist. Um, and, you know, you have to make a living. So uh, I saw a bunch of kids or young men in front of a hotel, and they were all taxi drivers. And, of course, this was uh, when everybody had long hair, and these guys had long hair. And you couldn't get a job if you had long hair anywhere else. So I thought, well, I could do that. So I became a taxi driver and I did it for 10 years in New York City uh, in the bowels of New York, I like to describe it as. And it was quite a learning experience and also a sort of a lonely existence because you're in this uh, vehicle by yourself, maybe with a few other people, you know, eight to 12 hours a day. And then you go home and you rest and you try and do some art and then you're back in the taxi again. It It was a trip. And it colored my life and it colored my creative process. So one night I was dreaming or one day because I did the night shift, um, I was lost in the dream and I was driving my taxi and I said out loud, where am I? And the voice in the dream said, you're on Kismet street. And I did not know what he meant by Kismet street. And I looked up, and there was a green New York uh, street sign that you see. I don't know if they're still green or not anymore, but and it said Kismet on it. So the next day, I, of course, had to look up what Kismet meant in the dictionary, and it means fate. And pretty much that uh, is the uh, rule of the game, if there are rules in my creative process, is I'm just open to fate. I'm open to what existence has to offer I think that I can, if I'm open enough and uh, get out of the way 
lose the judgments and just allow what's available in the hemisphere around me, then the creativity can happen. So it's all about faith. And I've named the 110 meter uh, mosaic wall that's still in process that'll be longer, Kismet Street. I love that. And I, I find for myself that I'm my most happiest and um, um, doing what I feel is the most right for me when I can be that open, which unfortunately for me is not all the time, but um, that's great. Now, you have a self-portrait of you and your partner, Richard, that you call Mexican Gothic. And you've been with Richard yeah. for, um, is it 20 years now? Yeah, and, 20 years. 20 oh, cool. years. And how does he play a role in your creative process? Well, Richard and I met in uh, 1998, and um, he just, uh, Richard is uh, has a background in art history. He taught art history on a, a high school level at a private school in um, the Bay Area for 20-some years, and he has a real uh, foothold in uh contemporary and and all forms of art all the way back to uh, the paleolithic things and so uh, and i of course am a, a plastic artist i work in a three-dimensional world and so i don't it, i think it's the, not only the love affair that we have as two men it's also the uh, chemistry of uh, both being interested in art that we're able to uh, challenge one another in our ideas and our um, foraging in the unknown. And Richard's the real uh, anchor for me, uh, just uh, someone who I run things by all the time when I'm doing work. And he's also encouraged me to do other things than just mosaic work and uh, assemblage, but uh, to delve more into painting and I just uh, trust him. I trust his instincts. He's a bright man. He's a heartful man. And he is my favorite being. Aw. Well, I'm I'm lucky that I have such a partner. And, um, you know, it's funny because my husband can just say one word and it can open up a whole new world for me. And it's just right. it's really great when you have someone that believes in you and that does challenge you to try different things. And, and um, now um, uh, there's another dimension of your installation that I thought was so cool. And um, it's kind of at the beginning of going through your property and it's an arch that you have several names for all of which yeah. to me conveyed kind of a metaphysical vision. Can you yeah. describe the arch and your names for it and what they represent to you? Well, the the first arch is called uh, the Arch to Nowhere. It's sort of a, uh, I guess it's a Zen statement. Um, and it has a sister arch down below called, uh, it's attached to the Chapel of Jimmy Ray that's called the Arch to Now Here. So it's a play on words. It's um, from nowhere, meaning uh, emptiness, to now here, to meaning presence. And then... I hope to have an arch on the other side that'll be completed uh, within the year called the arch to over there. And I'm dedicating, I'm dedicating the arch to over there to the friend and mentor and best friend uh, who named uh, now here and nowhere. 
Her name was Pamela Nelson. And Pamela was my deepest uh, ally in that spiritual realm. So she just, she knew me. She knew where to, uh, just how to be with me. She encouraged me. We had such a good time together. And she had a conscious conscious and uh, timely death last uh, July. And when I give these tours, I get to talk about her every time because I introduce the arches on the tour. And I uh, conclude the little um, talk by saying that Pamela was the first swimsuit model on Sports Illustrated in 1953. I get to honor her every day. Wow. She's my friend. That's awesome. And um, a feature, another feature in your work that's quite prominent are snakes. And I'm wondering if you can share what these represent for you. Well, I've always just uh, been um, intrigued by snakes. I just, uh, I remember as a child seeing a garter snake in the garden and just being blown away about their movement and their swiftness. And I, again, you know, I was born and raised in Oklahoma and there were rattlesnakes around. So these were also uh, uh, guardians of nature. And they, you just knew that uh, you didn't go certain places and nature needed to have some uh, space there and the snakes were there to protect her. And uh, being in from Oklahoma, which does mean in a, one native language, land of the red man. I learned a lot of Native American lore as a child. And to this day, I collect Kachina dolls and Navajo rugs. And um, the native people told me that the snake is the animal closest to the ground. The snake listens and hears what the mother of the earth has to say and reports back as a messenger. Ironically, in the Bible, uh, I believe it's the Old Testament, Testament, the story of Adam and Eve, and they represent Lucifer as a snake. Again, the messenger, but in the terms of Christian and Judea lore, the snake has uh, got a bad rep, and I'm Ooh. here to give the snake a better rep. That's my cool. story. Yeah. Isn't it fascinating how different traditions see, have different symbolism? Right. Right. And what the what the interpretation can be. Um, another one of your mosaic installations is of two, two hands. And I'm wondering if you can describe that piece. Right. The name of that piece, it's a large uh, installation. It's called uh, the big the big hands. It's really a, it was actually named by a friend of mine, Julie Ritchie, who's a mosaic artist who is a co-conspirator along with Anna Forcerado, For, For I'm going, excuse me, Anna. But um, they come every year and help us on one of our projects. And so the big hands represent the conflict and the separation that the United States and Mexico are experiencing, especially under the present administration in the United States of America. And what so it's a metaphor. Yes. And what's it saying? It's saying that there is a conflict and that the, the hands are in moving away from me uh, one another on each uh, fingerprint. If it was to be uh, anatomically correct, there is a skull and that is uh, representing uh, decay and death. And they're facing away from one another. In the middle of those two hands is a circular form, a mandala 
And in the center of the mandala is a glass anatomical heart that contains the ashes of a dear friend of mine who passed away way too young. And around that anatomical heart are four flowers representing aspects of her that I found to be uh, quite profound. Her uh, beauty, her quiet nature, her spontaneity, and her creativity. And to me, these are universal truths. Uh, these are something that, uh, that, that are available in the ether for all of humanity. And if the United States and Mexico could pay more attention to those universal truths and less to racism and politics, there might be a chance of both hands coming together in a, a, a gesture of peace. It's, a, it's just my, what I call installed poetry. Right. Well put. Now, you have another piece um, called Coltrane that was created by your right. colleague Carlos, Carlos's five sons. So I'm wondering if you can right. describe your relationship with Carlos and his family and the meaning behind this piece. We uh, bought our property almost 20 years ago, and I went into town to tell some uh, newfound uh, American friends who had been in San Miguel for many years that we found this property. And ironically, they had rented the house that we found years before. It had been abandoned for 10 years. And there, the uh, local uh, native population around here had created a road through part of our property, where, uh, which we actually owned the where it was. And they would use that as a way of getting back and forth from up to down on this uh, somewhat of a graded hillside. And they, that my friends told me that there was a young man who lived above us in a house named Carlos. And he would be of assistance to us if we need any help. And one day, um, soon after we were living on the property, I saw this young man coming up the road, a man on a bicycle, uh, looking very much like a young uh, Mexican uh, compo kid. Compo means country. And he was wearing a baseball hat, you know, shaggy hair, late 20s. And I asked him in my pig pen Spanish, do you know Carlos? And he said, I am Carlos. And that was just a magic moment. <laughs> and I said, can you come work for me? Can you help me? And he said, yes. And so the next day he came to work and he's been working here ever since. He is my, um, my what I call my ayudante. He's my helper, but he's also my teacher and my friend. He's, he's, he's a major part of this whole process that we have here at Casa de las Ranas and the chapel of Jimmy Ray. His thumbprint is in all of it with me and my other assistants and uh, with Richard's guidance too. Um, Carlos and I have our own language. It's amazing. We have our own words. We are able to communicate in a different realm. And he knows my ideas and he, we riff off one another. It's kind of like being in a band, like having the best lead guitar player to go along with my singing skills. And he could just do uh, amazing things. He, he's a, a product of living here uh, amongst animals and crops and uh, their culture. And he just is he's so handy. He has five uh, They're now, I believe, um, uh, 14 to 21 years old. But when they were ages 5 to 13, uh, they uh, one day I had them go around the property and gather all of the dead wood 
on the ground from our mesquite trees. We live in a really beautiful situation where there's lots of mesquite trees. It's uh, almost like we're in a forest. And um, so they brought the mesquite uh, branches back to uh, a certain cement slab that we had on the property. And we created this uh, figure and made a face for him using a log and uh, different natural uh, uh, forms to create what we now call Coltrane. And Coltrane is the guardian spirit of our property. When I tell the story of Coltrane, automatically people think of John or Alice Coltrane, and they all kind of chuckle. Coltrane is named after a road in Oklahoma where I grew up, Coltrane ah. Road, C-O-A-T-R-A-I-N, Coltrane. And I always loved that name. And when we were building Coltrane, I had gone back to visit my family uh, in Oklahoma City, and I was able to drive down Coltrane Road. So it was ripe in my mind. I had to name it that. And the irony also that it's John Coltrane. Right. Well, I, I mistakenly immediately assumed uh, it was John Coltrane. So it just got to yeah. show you. Well, it, is, it, is, it is in an etheric sense, but it's, uh, it was based in uh, my Oklahoma heritage. Right. Well, and it actually looks like me, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's another example of uh, interpretation, always being uh, yeah. personal. Another piece... Um, features the word always in Spanish. And I'm wondering if you can explain the significance behind that name and what it means to you. The piece says, uh, siempre, above a, a mandala. We were approached by a group of young entrepreneurial people. Uh, I believe their name is Sandbox. They may have changed their name, but they're all under 30. And they go uh, to a different location around the world every year for a uh, a retreat or a think tank. And one year they chose to come to San Miguel and uh, uh, do their uh, retreat. And they contacted me and asked if they could have a four-hour mosaic workshop out here. So I said yes, and we constructed a wall. Ironically, my father's portrait is on the other side, Jimmy Ray. We did that after this workshop. However, um, in preparing for the workshop, I... Uh, created a mandala in the middle of this small wall that represents uh, Sandbox's brand. And then above it wrote in child sort of psychedelic letters, siempre, which means always. I wrote that to remind them and myself that to always, always, always be in contact with that childlike scribbled nature of one's uh, creative process to, to not allow the adult um, or to at least try and keep the adult editor out of the situation and to create from a childlike experience of wonder. So it's about wonder. It's about staying in contact what, with That's wonder. such an important message. Yeah, yeah. to me too. <laughs> it's, so, it's so easy to lose it. Um, now, yeah. you have what you refer to as the coolest composter in the world. Um, and many of your pieces are made with recycled material. Can you tell us the story behind the composter and share your views on the relationship between art and used well, objects? Uh, this composter that you're referring to is what's known as a baño seco here in Mexico, a dry toilet. Uh, we were approached by a group of uh, green people, people in the, the green movement, 
to do a workshop on our property about building a what we call a baño seco or a composting toilet. And ironically, they never got back to me. And uh, so I still had the idea of doing that. So uh, I went online and researched uh, how to build one. And of course, uh, did it in the style that I like to work in. And that is using uh, recycled uh, bottles. And uh, I have uh, recycled cookie jar lids on it. I have broken bottles. I have fine bottles. I have marbles. I have uh, pieces of glass mirrors and created what we now call the Kaka Mahal. And uh, I, I promise you, it's, it's, it's a jewel. There's two uh, separate uh, commodes. You use one side per year and the other side is sealed and the compost, uh, you know, I'm putting my fingers up with, uh, you know, parentheses or whatever. It cooks the uh, excrement cooks. I'm being very uh, um, down to earth in my answer, I guess. But it's uh, it's just a playful, uh, uh, amazing uh, structure that we created. One of my major influences in my art, one of the people I really like to pay homage to was a man by the name of Hundervasser. Hundervasser, you might want to look him up if you don't know him, was a uh, artist in Austria who did a just incredible work, uh, just an amazing artist who spent his final years in New Zealand. And he has, in New Zealand, where he used to park his boat, he has created an incredible toilet there. And I like to say that we outdid him with our uh, Kakamahal. <laughs> That's great. And can you, can you just talk a little bit about your views on the relationship between art and used objects? Well, to me, I just uh, I work with what's available, and I like to uh, combine and juxtapose uh, articles or uh, uh, you know uh, trash in such a way that their sense of irony is uh, is uh, uh, tapped into. And I'm very highly influenced as a young man back in the '60s by the combines by Robert Rauschenberg and how he combined uh, just the most unusual object to make the most brilliant pieces. So I just continue to do that. I, it's been Robert Rauschenberg's legacy that all of this is happening, I guess, because um, there's so much stuff that's thrown away that that has such a uh, beautiful, uh, either um, architectural or sacramental uh, essence to it that needs to be uh, returned to... Uh, its proper alignment with other uh, sac uh, objects. I call it. The, it's, I call it uh, combining both the sacred and the profane, and that's a kind of a hackneyed um, term, but to me, it means a lot. Right, and that's life, isn't it? Really. Yeah, of course. Now that's yeah, what we do. I learned um, that you are a self-taught ceramicist. And, um, you know, the story that you shared about how you learned, um, I felt made a great statement about the willingness to experiment and to, to be fearless in creating art. Can you can you share, you know, literally how you learned how to do ceramics and your views about about fear and art? Well, to be uh, quite honest, I'm not a ceramicist. I'm more of a mosaic ceramic uh, pieces in my art. I don't create any of the ceramics myself. These are all uh, pieces that I find or buy along the way. 
But I, I was working in my studio. I had a studio in Sausalito before we came to Mexico. And I was doing, again, these assemblages and uh, uh, combined pieces. Um, as, you know, that's what I did. And I've been doing all, you know, my adult life. And I decided I wanted to include a mosaic in it. And I had never done any mosaic work. And I called a friend of mine on the telephone who was a uh, tile setter for bathrooms. And I asked him how he did it on the telephone. And then all of a sudden I went out and bought all the materials that I needed in order to make this uh, mosaic piece and just started doing it. I'm totally self-taught. I'm, in fact, I break all the rules of what the, uh, most of these professional mosaic artists do. I just do it my way. I'm, I'm not the best mosaic artist in the world, but I'm probably one of the happier mosaic artists because there's no rules. And my, my, uh, uh, one of my, things or my uh, expressions that I live by is there are no rules, only consequences. And that's the way I like to live and indulge my art without rules. Well, that's a great philosophy. Now, your home is literally a work of art. And so I want to ask you, you know, what does home mean to you? Well, home is the most important thing. Ironically, you hear the expression, home is where the heart is. Um, Well, that's the most incredible truth available, I believe, to man and womankind. Uh, Home is in the heart. It begins with the heartbeat. It begins with the essence of who we are. And I have always lived this way uh, in sort of this adorned universe. Uh, Again, thank you to my mother, Marie McLaughlin, for turning me on to that. she always encouraged me as a child to uh, have uh, beautiful things surrounding me to remind me, I guess. I don't know what her intention was, but she always encouraged me to uh, adorn my surroundings. And she was a very sophisticated, uh, intelligent woman. Uh, and somehow we were all in Oklahoma, which had everything going against us. But she kept instilling in me the idea and the philosophy of adornment, of making uh, my environment uh, pleasant and, I guess, more uh, beautiful. I'm mm. very grateful to you. You've described your work as an exploration of the thread of irreverent placements and juxtapositions that map out the mysterious, chaotic marriage of the sacred and the profane. And you touched on this earlier, but can you expand on that? I was fortunate to uh, be in India in parts of the 70s and 80s with a teacher who uh, was quite uh, a character. And his his philosophy and his uh, his viewpoint was rather controversial. Uh, however, in it was it, it spoke to me, and that's all that's important. It doesn't have to. Uh, no one has to at all accept this man as being a demagogue or anything. It's just that I was lucky enough to be with somebody who pointed me in a direction where everything is sacred and everything in a sense has a profanity to it at the same time. It could be one man's cup of tea and the other person's uh, poison. And the, the, the irony is finding that juxtaposition, finding that fine line where those two can come together and meet the sacred and the profane. Uh, again, like the snake, you know, the snake, one is a, 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 a fearful object or 
being and to another person, it's a sacred uh, uh, spirit animal. So I like to just place things together in such a way that provoke that provoke a dialogue with the uh, the viewer and the piece that they're viewing. Uh, it's to me, it's all I, what I call installed poetry. I give uh, people an example of juxtaposition. And what their mind does with it is what's important. It has no longer in my hands. It's just, it belongs to them, belongs to the public. And that's, you know, it's, it's universal. Yes. Well, it's interesting. I attended a, a lecture at Harvard a couple years ago by a um, very um, well-known and well-respected Colombian artist. And in his talk, he said the whole point of art is to get people to think. And, you know, I may be kind of a bumpkin, but that had never really quite occurred to me. And I think it's a great definition. I mean, I, I think your work is beautiful, but I think the fact that, you know, it, it is evoking in different people, different responses is, that is, that is kind of the point. Um, now, um, you had an opening this past weekend um, with two fellow artists who you've described um, as the Wabi Sabi Collective. And, um, you know, I love that, the concept behind Wabi Sabi. And I'm wondering if for listeners, if you can describe what that stands for and what it means to you. Right. Well, the couple, they're a married couple, uh, Shirley Markentell and her husband, Greg Ellis, and they worked separately as artists and they also worked together and they called themselves the Wabi Sabi Collective. Wabi Sabi is a Japanese term uh, that evokes uh, the imperfect, the uh, the sense of patina, the sense of uh, longevity in work that shows a... Uh, almost a, uh, I don't want to say scarred nature, but there is a sense of having lived. And their work has that, uh, shows that process of imperfection, but in, within that imperfection, there is a perfect, uh, beautiful patina of joy to me. At least I, I, I uh, look at it as joy. Others could look at it as style, but to me, it's about joy. It's about the joy of living. And about the, the uh, lines that uh, begin to show on our faces as we grow older. We are all walking examples of Wabi Sabi. Yes, well said. I agree. Yes. I agree. Now, my, my last question for you, Nato. Um, Best Cultural Destinations tagline is People are Culture, Connecting is the Destination. And it seems to me that your work is also about connection. So in closing, could you share a message with listeners about what connection means to you and uh, how to achieve it? For me, uh, when you're asking that question, I'm reminded of uh, what I said earlier about home is where the heart heart is. Of course, it's not my, um, my statement. It's not an original statement, but I believe that what Connectedness to me is when we as humanity, the human culture can come together and meet in that place, uh, not about logic and uh, uh, knowing. The knowing has no logic or uh, uh, wordful uh, definition. It's more about uh, meeting in the heart. 
It's about sharing that life force that we all have and meeting that, that special place. To me, when I know when I've done something uh, good, if you want to call it good in my expression, is if I start, uh, if I find tears, tears welling up in me. Uh, it's just, uh, the heart is just uh, an amazing tool. It, it's such a teacher and it's not about a dialogue of words. It's about a dialogue of feeling and knowing. And it's, it's just the most important thing in the world. to me. I agree. Anato, is there anything else you'd like to share with listeners? Uh, <laughs> oh, I just, I'm very grateful that you chose to ask me to do this. If anything, um, I could say, and it's, it's again, a bit, bit of a definition of my art. And that is allowing yourself to be a fool, to be a, to be full of a sense of wonder to make mistakes. Uh, in mistakes, it's the that's where we learn. Uh, we we are on a voyage over a sea of mistakes, and in those mistakes, we are able to build something more glorious. We learn from our mistakes. So, if anything, be a fool and do thyself. I love it. Listen, Anato, thank you so so much. Uh, yeah, this is really a treat. You you have so much wisdom, and um, it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you. And I look forward to hearing from you again. You will. Thank you, Anato. Right. Take okay, care. Move on. Adios. Adios. Bye -bye.